Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with Danielle Ackley McPhail, and we're going to talk a little bit about Sistema Paradoxa, cryptozoology, and other goodness. Welcome, Danielle. Can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, where you're from, how you got started in this in this racket? Uh, well, publishing or cryptids? <laughs> uh, well, let's publish publishing first, but just kind of general background where you're from and then we can get so, into all that i am from new jersey i am an author editor publisher designer i've worked in publishing for over 30 years and have virtually even before i became a publisher done virtually every job there is in the field um I've been an author for over 20 years and a publisher for approaching eight. My publishing house is Eastbeck Books. I swear I was never going to become a publisher. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I did a lot of production work for other publishers and everything and generally small press. And unfortunately, they have a tendency to self-destruct. And what, what, why is that? Just curious. A lot of people go into self-publishing because they're not finding what they want mm -hmm. in in the market, and they don't necessarily have the skill set to do either all the work themselves or to know what work actually is needed, and they get overwhelmed. Um, mm. They may use their own capital to fund everything, or they may use credit or they don't understand what impact returns will have on their bottom line because they're unexpected. And one return kills the sales for about three books, for three sales. Oh, really? Yes, because um, especially with print on demand, because you have to, um, when a book is returned, the print cost plus whatever shipping cost and yeah you know whatever expenses the distributor had for issuing that sale then comes back so um, it's it's really unfortunate but so small press is caught in a very tough position because bookstores will not order your book if you don't have a return policy it's not returnable and so a lot of people will go ahead and make it returnable and they will do, there's two different time, types of returnable. There's returnable where you get the product back and there's returnable where they just destroy it. Um, if you ever went to a used bookstore and saw all the books with the covers ripped off, those were actually destructions that should have been thrown away. Yeah, they're not supposed to be sold, right? Yeah. And so someone either dumpster dive for them or, you know, the places that destroyed them decided they would make some money off them too. Um, and if you get it where you get the product back, there's a $2 fee. So you have whatever the turn was plus the $2 fee to get the book back. Um, so that could in effect kill the sales for four books. And it can, it can steamroll. One of the things that people don't know about the book industry is it's, 
you know, it's a business. And so the bookstores don't want to pay out money that they don't have to. When it comes time to pay an invoice, which is usually 90 days after they've ordered the stock, a lot of them, what they do is they go through their inventory and anything that's not really moving, they return it until it balances out. So they hardly have to pay anything when it's time for their invoice to come due. So they're, they're making the sale on the books that are popular and sending back you know, the things that they were just filling the shelves with. And a lot of times they will then go back and reorder stock. For the same books that they return. Potentially. And so they have, it really is painful for small press. Um, I, I've been rather fortunate. So I don't court bookstore sales. Do you use I, like I, Ingram Spark or something like that? I use Ingram Spark. So bookstores can order our product, but I don't set my discount or my prices specifically to make it attractive to bookstores. Because bottom line, I know for the most part, my sales are direct hand sales to you know, our market, going through conventions and selling off of our website. If like, say for an example, an author does a bookstore event, goes to Barnes and Noble, Mm-hmm. Barnes and Noble orders 20 books for the event. The author sells three. Maybe Barnes and Noble will put two on the shelf, but then they'll return the other 15. And so you've massively lost on that event that's supposed to promote. Mm-hmm. So by using the method that that we do just going off online sales and and direct sales and events where we can bring our own stock it safeguards the press ensures the author a better return and it keeps us from getting into that danger zone that several of the publishers that i had before i became a publisher uh unfortunately fell victim to so it's not always that they get financially in trouble. They may get burnt out. They may have health issues. They may just not have the business sense or understanding of what it takes to be a small press publisher, uh, filing the taxes, um, sales tax, distribution, royalties. It's, it's a lot of work. Even if you farm out the production work, mm-hmm. um, it's a lot to take on and not everybody is prepared for that. Eastbeck and, is oh, sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead. Good. Um, Eastbeck is fortunate because between myself and my husband, Mike McPhail, um, who co-owns the company with me, we have all of the skills to do complete production by ourselves. I do design and layout on the interiors. He's our graphic designer. We, Mike worked in the printing industry. And like I said, I worked in the publishing industry formally for 30 years um, before I even became a publisher practically. And where, where did you work for that first 30 years of publishing? <laughs> like what places? Uh, um, 
one of the key things about publishing is we make books, not money. And that goes <laughs> for every part of the industry. Um, first, I worked for a publisher called Plenum, mm -hmm. and they were a medical publisher down in the village. I worked for Jupe and C++ Magazine, which is a computer programming magazine, also down in the village. I've worked for a reprint publisher called BBS Publishing. I've worked for Random House. I've worked for Music Sales Corporation, which had two arm two branches one was licensing rights and the other was music related books whether biographies or how to's or other such things um sheet music books a, a wide variety and then my last job in publishing was walters clore which was a medical publisher and when did you decide to take the leap to, to start your own publishing? <laughs> um, I had a couple of publishers go under on me and I was with a New Jersey publisher, which I won't name just because, uh, you know, I'm not airing their laundry to right. point them out. But I had, I was formally their production department. And part of that meant that, you know, pretty much whatever project I wanted to do would be done. N you know, not ahead of other things, but like if I took an anthology idea that I wanted to do, or if I had a novel or something, they had like 15 books of mine between novels and short story collections and anthologies I edited. And they unfortunately got into the financial trouble because of using personal funds and not separating their business finances from their personal finances and massive returns. Mm -hmm. And with all of that, they just, they couldn't function anymore and gradually had to stop paying royalties and stuff like that just because the money wasn't there because of the returns. And so before I had to make the hard choice of not staying with them while they were still functional, I have, I do a lot of conventions. So I have a lot of connections, um, meet a lot of people in the industry at all different levels. And previously I would bring opportunities to my publishers whether it's a novel that someone wanted to do or in the anthologies I was doing, I have some pretty big name authors that participated. And I no longer felt like I could do that in good conscience because I didn't know how stable the house was anymore. Mm -hmm. And so in 2014, I participated in, at that time, the highest grossing Kickstarter that publishing Kickstarter that had ever been. It was through Silence in the Library Press and the anthology was Athena's Daughters. They raised over $44,000. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot in that campaign. For, primarily before that, I just saw no way to even be a publisher if I had that desire. 
because I didn't have a lot of capital myself and mm. it just didn't seem viable. But Kickstarter has revolutionized small press and indie publishing for those that understand how the structure works and, and how to be run a successful campaign. And well, the, late, by, the latest one, publishing one was what, 41 million? Yeah. Sanderson? Uh, Brandon Sanderson. But he 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 brought his audience with him. Yeah. It, and um, while we would all love to be a Sanderson, it's a rare thing. But, you know, it is possible to do that well. And and small press can really um, safeguard themselves by using that tool wisely. Uh, and when I say wisely, a lot of people set a really high goal and get ambitious with what they want to do with the project, custom art, illustrations, hardbound, leatherbound, you know, whatever. There's endless variations. And everything that they add to their checklist increases their expense. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, that's just the production expenses. It, that doesn't even take into account the shipping and fulfillment expenses for the campaign itself. So in that Athena's daughter campaign, <laughs> sorry, my cat wants to say hi. It's like, it's like Schrodinger's cat. It's <laughs> wink, winking in and out, <laughs> winking in and out of the... <laughs> um is she there or not i don't know she's there but it's a precarious perch for her anyway <laughs> so you have to be very strategic in using kickstarter and and mm -hmm. i learned in a very ideal situation what can be done to make a campaign successful and and how to structure it so that you can accomplish what you want to accomplish and not get into trouble. So for myself, low funding goals, you create two budgets, basically. Your top end, all the bells and whistles budget, and your bare bones, get it done budget. Mm -hmm. And the bare bones is your goal. Because with Kickstarter, if you don't meet your goal, you get nothing. So you put all that effort in for the disappointment. And then you, you obviously put a margin on top of that bare bones yeah. goal so that you make some money. Right? <laughs> well, no, I put my bare bones and that's it because I know I am going to exceed my bare bones because I've gone very low. So like for, for a single book, I might set a $400 goal or a $500 goal. I know for me, my first campaign was relatively successful, not along the scales of Athena's daughters, but mm -hmm. I raised almost $2,000 for just producing an ebook novella. And that was me figuring out the structure and everything. And it also built a following. 
and I already had an existing following because as an author, I had been at it for about 15 years before I started becoming a publisher and running Kickstarters. Mm-hmm. So I knew to hustle, I knew to promote, I knew to draw on my network of connections to spread the word. And by setting the modest goal, I knew that I would hit it fairly quickly. I, I reached the point, I, I think we've, I have two Kickstarter creator accounts, one for personal projects, one for Eastbeck, and combined, we have had over over 30 successful campaigns. Oh, wow. And so with the bare bones, I know I can produce the book because I'm doing all the work myself or with Mike's, you know, Mike also. <laughs> um, and we have someone that does, you know, Greg does the editing for us and we've brought on a second editor. And that's just for everyone to know. That's Greg Shower of Between Books, right? Yeah. I, I don't know how to say his last name. <laughs> He's always just been Greg. Um, so so I knew that for that amount, it, it assumed that was all I made. It would maybe be a dozen people that I would have to send books to. And some of them would only take an ebook. So the production cost would be very low. Um, I elect whether or not I pay myself, depending on how successful the campaign is for my production work. So, so I could produce a book for that amount and put it into distribution and not get into trouble. But with the following that I have built and the, the strategy that I use, I usually hit that goal, if not in the first day, within the first three. And with the use of strategic stretch goals, we build the excitement and we get to add some of those bells and whistles in and it grows. So our most recent campaign did nearly $6,000 to produce three books. And part of our stretch goals was to produce hardcovers of those books as well. So all of that is product that we can then get out there commercially, but we are not touching our capital, our existing capital, and we are not touching personal funds and we are not using credit. And that's why our our model works without endangering the future of the authors by mismanaging it you know, there, there's certain things that are outside of your control. I say mismanagement. I don't mean to deride any of the publishers that went under on us. Yeah, just making sure else. that you have enough liquidity to pay the exactly. author's royalties. Right. To pay them royalties, to be able to develop the company and produce the stock without getting into trouble. That's always the key. Because I've seen, I, I, I have learned so much from other people's mistakes and and put into place strategies and operational guidelines so that we don't make similar mistakes. Yeah, it sounds to me that having the bookstore actually send you back returns doesn't no, you know, just just keep them if you're not so yeah. in the beginning 
I was always skeptical because I knew, you know, used bookstores, torn covers. Um, so in the beginning, I used to have them send the returns back to me because, damn it, I want to know that you actually returned the book. <laughs> but it, it's not worth the added expense. And what, what ultimately happened is I moved. And there was a mix up with the addresses in the account. Like there was a place where it indicated returns should go. And it was at such a sub level that I did not know it was there and didn't change it when I moved. Mm. And for some reason we went back to the old house and there's a package propped up against the door and it's to us and it's books. <laughs> so at that point, I just, you know, anytime I do returns, it's only destroy now. And that's actually where we started with all this. Sorry for all the tangent, but um, no, no, no. It's 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 interesting. Usually, yeah. when people go on tangents, but they're talking about something that's interesting <laughs> and informative and educational, I'll take I'll 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 go down that side path just to. Yeah. Um, but, but why, if they don't return them to you and they just destroy them, mm -hmm. why do you incur further costs? Because the distributor has to give them back their money. Mm. Oh, so you have to pay the distributor's cut, basically. Yeah. So, so the distributor so, doesn't have to pay anything. Um, no, it, it comes, any, any deficit from the return comes back to the publisher. So the print cost for the book because they, it, since it's print on demand, they are printing the book for that customer. So if the customer returns, it, it's the print costs plus whatever other costs, whatever royalty we got for the sale and, and whatever, you know, um, whatever shipping. So it's the shipping. That... I'm, I'm presuming, yeah. They, they don't that... break it down for you. Of course they don't. Yeah. It's maybe they do. It's just on a sub level. <laughs> so they just provide you with a, like a, a lump of costs and they don't. Yeah. When, when that's, that's really sketchy. That's yeah. really sketchy. You can generate a report and it just, it shows you what the sales were, what the returns were, um, what your print costs were, and then what the, deficit for the return was and then gives you a bottom line of that you know sales history okay <laughs> all right are uh, never in our benefit <laughs> yeah and it sounds like you can't they probably have boilerplate contracts that you can't really negotiate yeah, no, no, definitely not. If you use their service, that this is just the way it is. And mm. you know what? It's going to be that way no matter who you produce with. And personally, I like the quality and the functionality of Ingram. Since they did start out as a distributor, you have a baked-in distribution. Right. You know, the, the places still have to order it. But like all of the online third-party sites, your print and ebook will appear on all the relevant ones. They have started to do distribution to libraries and to 
subscription services. So, you know, the, the titles get out there and then it's up to us to promote them so people know what they are. So, so it works with, with some of the other options. It's much more limited. And if you want that diversity of distribution, there's an, an extra charge and the quality produced is not as good. The okay, price so, is probably a little higher for Ingram, but for me, it, it's worth it for what you get. And for eSpec, typically how many titles do you produce each year? We started it- out very conservatively. Our goal was to do maybe about four titles a year. Mm-hmm. And pretty much we stuck with that. And I, I'll stipulate that those were new titles, new releases. Occasionally, someone would bring us a reprint and those we would just kind of slot in. That That's not a part of the, the count goal. And then <laughs> 2019 or so, we got approached by Cryptid Crate and all of a sudden our volume increased. And yeah, I was about to ask, because like, you know, you're doing more than four of those. Well, I guess if yeah. you're only doing one a quarter, that's four in addition to the four you've already. Yeah. Well, done. initially they were supposed to have four exclusive and two non-exclusive. And mm-hmm. that just didn't work out for them. They they the first one that they tried, they did digital and they paid for like 300 codes and pieces of paper tend to get lost in the box, meaning people don't pay attention to them. So a lot of people didn't download the digital content. So for them, it was like, well, I guess that didn't work, but they pay enough for the books that if they put a physical book in a non-exclusive box, it really cuts down on the budget for what they can put in to fill it out. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's not really cost worthy for them. But right, well, now that you mentioned the, the cryptid create, let's talk about <laughs> Sistema Paradox. Yeah. Like so, where did that, how did that start? I know you said they approached <laughs> you, but how, like talk through the inside baseball of that. That sounds like an interesting story. So one, um, I will preface this by saying, I didn't know this at the time, but individuals involved with Cryptid Crate are friends of Greg's. Pretty much everybody in Delaware is friends of Greg's. <laughs> yeah, he's a great and, guy. Right. And Cryptid Crate, um, the, the parent company is Box Mountain. And they have three different subscription services. Cryptid Crate, Pips Mountain, which is a dice subscription box. And Maker Box, which is for 3D filaments. So you get samples of different types of filaments, different types of effects, that type of thing. Yeah, say more. I'm 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 completely ignorant. So what what is a what is a 3D filament? Um, for 3D printers, the ah, I got it. The, okay. the filament that you actually use to print. There are a lot of different uh, materials. There's different effects. Um, some of them have, you know. Varying prices and varying success rates. So this is a way for people to try different filaments and decide if something will work for them. Okay, so filament, it's not the material 
that's printed. It's it's yeah, it's the material they. Print oh, it's a material. From. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So think right. of it as a spool, and the printer melts it and then refashions it and yep into whatever. Okay. All right. So, so sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I, I had to. I had. I had to ask because no I, You know, I, I might not be the only person who's like, "Oh, what?" I'm sure they're glad to have that content out there too. So no problem. Um, but one of the problems is, is there are so many cryptids accounted in the world, and there's maybe a dozen, two dozen that are well known. Mm-hmm. And those are the ones that get all of the focus. So, like Mothman, Bigfoot, Loch Ness, Jersey Devil. There's content out there all over the place for those. And the lesser known ones, not so much. With them providing monthly boxes, they need fresh content constantly. Mm-hmm. And it can't be the same cryptids over and over again, because then what's the incentive for people to, you know, get the box? So they were familiar with East, with Eastbeck because of Greg. Mm-hmm. And they just reached out to me via a direct message and said, do you have any cryptid content? And I just said, no, but we could. <laughs> and the that's idea, the right answer yeah. that's the right answer in the publishing business it drives me nuts because i'll ask i'll invite people i'll say hey do you want to i'm working on this anthology do you want to like submit a story and i'm surprised the answer like there's only one answer to that question unless unless you're you know somebody who's just completely buried with you know you're like a top selling author it just does just physically doesn't have the time but if you're somebody who's kind of a mid-list or even a relatively unknown author mm-hmm. the answer is there's only one answer it's yes <laughs> right like what you do you just, want you, yeah you just you just find a way and i've been very surprised that there's some people who are just like um too bit it's just like <laughs> yeah i think like a lot of times it's confidence level i think they're not used to writing short or they just don't know if they can pull it off, but yeah, I get what you're saying. But so they said, you know, what do you, what do you got? And I, I told you I have a long, uh, a large network and several of the people I knew had done cryptid fiction and they were people that I trusted that I knew could turn around quick. So I was like, well, we could each do a long story and have a book with those three stories and there's cryptid content and as i was looking at where cryptozoology came from and what was out there and different options that we had the very first thing i found was sistema natural and i'm never going to be able to say the guy's name his first name's carl (laughs) but this is way back in i want to say the 16th century but i really didn't worry about those details too much it's it's few centuries ago this was a scientific series of journals oh is this carl linnaeus there you go 
I can't, I don't know where I pulled that from the recesses of my mind. I don't, it's like but, Rain Man over here, but God, sorry. So, so he had this series of volumes on zoology mm-hmm. and one of the volumes was Animalia Paradoxa. And it was all of the cryptid creatures. Some of them were creatures from mythology. Others were just creatures that were documented in writing, but no one had seen the animal. You know, no one living had seen the animal or remains for the animal. So Carl Linnaeus actually put together like a cryptozoological He's pretty much the father of cryptozoology. But he's like also the father of like the whole classification system, right? Yes. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. In later volumes, um, Animalia Paradoxa was removed. Right. But it's out there. <laughs> so when I discovered that this was where everything had originated in the formality of cryptozoology, I started kicking around ideas. And there was already an Animalia Paradoxa collection out there, uh, poems and stuff by one individual. And, but then I was like, this was an educational text. And I I have a a talent, a gift for taking a concept and just running with it. And, you know, sometimes it's really gold. (laughs) One of the, one of the things that I am known for are the badass fairies anthologies before people thought of fairies as badass we de-disnify the fairy and that series went rather well we got up to four volumes and unfortunately that was a victim of some of the publishers that self-destructed um and so i like building packages and and playing with concepts and and really working it so it's something special and with Systema Paradoxa, I really got to do that. Um, I didn't bring any copies of the books up, unfortunately. Uh, they're all packed because I just got back from Balticon. But I mean, I, I know that. The, yeah, I see them right there. Yeah. yeah. Um, over here, the brown books, they all have the same design. And it's made to look like a leather-bound embossed tome. And we took old fashioned encyclopedia pages that we found online and mirrored the interior to look like those. So we have a quote at the top that we try to make applicable to the story or at least to cryptozoology. Yeah, there's not a lot out there, so it, it can be tricky sometimes, but we've, we've had some good luck selecting applicable quotes we've made the language for the title page a little bit more formal so it's um system of paradox uh, tales of cryptozoological import mm-hmm. the story of whatever cryptid it is and the the story title whatever cryptid it is as accounted by and then the author's name so little things to to give it that formal feel of of something that it has been existing for a long time that is old that is scholarly uh inside it's just the normal book and then at the end there is an encyclopedia style 
entry. Um, one of the the things that I remember most from the encyclopedias I grew up with is that they would be like two columns and there would be these line art, um, sometimes shaded or just lines or whatever. And they had a very distinct feel. So we got an artist that depicted the cryptid that is in the book with that same kind of style, shaded, very detailed, but with an aged look to it. Mm-hmm. And then the author would write the story and I would write the encyclopedia entry drawing on the online sources and combining them, taking taking the varying details. A lot of times when you when you search online, it's the same exact entry from page to page. Um, but then you might find uh, a news article or something like that, a feature public interest piece type thing that might have a few more unusual details in it that you didn't find somewhere else. There's some crazy stuff that you find. <laughs> there is. So I'm not going to go too much into my story, but um, I like, even if you just look at the region that mm-hmm. where the cryptid appears, you'll find some crazy stuff. Yeah. I, 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 there, I think there's a, there's a story that I, um, like there's one there's one kind of anecdote that i use in my story that's based on a real incident mm-hmm. where there was like a family that kind of disappeared into the desert and they like their house had like inverted cross it's just like and nobody could explain what the heck yeah. happened um there were uh so there was a lot of seismic activity in the area that i studied so i used that mm-hmm. in the story so I, I like how the the series really kind of allows authors to take some established cryptid stories, but also take some of these other finer details and make it their their own. Definitely, um, and part of the reason yeah. we did that is because so much of what is out there gets just repeated over and over again. And that means that the people that are getting these boxes, at least some of them are already well familiar with that. And the point of the novellas is to give them something fresh and new and interesting and creative. And you can do that, especially because cryptozoology, the details are sparse. It's based on an account somewhere, maybe a hazy photograph. So there's so much room to play and be creative and still honor the nature of cryptozoology. And frankly, some of them are hoaxes, right? True, definitely. So, but yeah, but uh, you have to kind of leave that in the eye of the the beholder, the, you know, let the, oh, go ahead. Let them decide. Um, That's one of the reasons that we do the encyclopedia entry based on the content that's out there rather than the story itself and and share the varying viewpoints that we find online so we will mention the details that are canon for that cryptid but also the theories of well why did people believe this or what could be the scientific explanation so we address both parts 
without making a decision either way. We, we just put right. the details out there for the people that are curious. And, and that's one of the reasons that Cryptid Crate wants us to go for the more obscure cryptids. So they have a variety of things. And so that they are drawing people in because they're learning about all of these different things that they didn't know before that they find interesting. And how many volumes have you done at least? So just for the audience, <laughs> this, this interview will appear on October 21st. So it should be October 21st or later when you're watching this. But right now it is May 31st that we recorded this interview. So as of May 31st, how many volumes are there and what are the you know, cryptids that you guys have covered so far? There are 13 that have completed production. And there are another four that are in the midst of production. Of those, 11 have officially published. <laughs> we have done, um, by John L. French, we have the first volume, which is When the Moon Shines. And that is Snally Gasters and Dueo, which are regional to Maryland. The second one is one of the hoax ones, like you were mentioning. It appeared in the April Cryptid Crate for 2021, and it was The Wonk, and that's by Aaron Rosenberg. We have A Skinwalker by David Lee Summers. We have The Jersey Devil by Keith R. A. De Candido. We have Montauk Monster versus Bigfoot <laughs> by James Chambers. We have Bat Squatch and Dingbat, and an assortment of other cryptids that get only a mention by uh, Patrick Thomas in Cryptid Fight Club. We have, it's hard doing this from memory. <laughs> we have uh, Sewer Slime or um, Sewer Blob, depending on the account that you find, by Anton Kukul, and that's Alone in the Muck. Mm -hmm. We have El Cato. Um, it, it's a more of a mythos-based one of two cursed wolf brothers by Robert Waters called Eyes of the Wolf. We have found footage by Mary Fan, which is Mantis Man. And we have... Chessie at Bay, which is the Chesapeake Bay sea monster, again by John L. French. Mm -hmm. And one more. Bessie, the Lake Erie sea monster by Carol Geisander. <laughs> and I can't tell you mine yet. So those are the first 11, right? Yes. And then there's... Almost there's... in order. <laughs> okay. And then, and then there's yours, and it sounds... And it's probably the 13th is mine. Yes. Um, which is, it's in Lone Pine. So, which is the, you know, it's in Lone Pine, California. I took a little expedition back there. I actually posted, um, a, you know, I had a blog post about this secret trip that I took. Oh, cool. To, to Lone Pine.
it was an interesting experience. There's a lot of weird stuff out there. Like there's yeah. the there's like a the Mobius arch, which looks like a Mobius strip, and there's an arch that you can, you know, look through. And it's just yeah, it's a beautiful area, but it's um and it's at the base of Mount Whitney. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of um you know interesting things that you can see out there. And it was it was during COVID too when I went there. So I was in this <laughs> weird hotel room and you know, everything was, um, you couldn't go anywhere without wearing a mask and it was virtually empty, which mm-hmm. is great. There were no people there. So Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Um, and in terms of, uh, do you have any any more planned going forward? For, for, for Systema Paradoxa? Oh, definitely. We're going to keep going as long as they, well, let me put it this way we'll probably keep going even if they decide they don't want anymore <laughs> we're just having too much fun with it and we put so much effort into the package and and the project and it, it's fun it, it's a lot of fun exploring this i mean we've done a lot of fantasy urban fantasy all of that and this is kind of a subgenre between fantasy and horror and it's it's just so much fun to play with and because the content um of the actual accounts are kind of vague and conflicting and all of that it gives you a lot of room to play and and so many things that you can do um my own because this is actually you know what because this is airing in October, I can tell you, because mine's for the July box. I did yeah. the Shadow People, and oh. mine is called the the Play of Light. And there are so many different accounts of Shadow People. It's actually the longest standing cryptid in recorded history. So, so this is like the the sleep paralysis source. Yeah. Like that, yeah. there's that one picture of that like demon like sitting on someone's chest, yeah. Which I'll I'll show uh, as I'm talking. <laughs> it'll it'll come up and and you'll see it. But and I can give you uh, images of the covers and stuff so that you can see. Um, well, there's 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 some there's actually a um, uh, his name's not he's not not coming to mind. But there are there are folks who are like weird fiction writers yeah. so this guy is a weird fiction writer who's and they also called they're also um associated with night terrors yeah right yeah. which which lovecraft i think mm-hmm. used to have um there's another lovecraftian not lovecraftian not legatian author today who you know has, has been struggling with these sort of night terrors um and there's many scientific theories as to what causes them um, everything from drugs to schizophrenia to sleep paralysis. Yeah, I think they say it's like your power sympathetic nervous system mm-hmm. shutting down or something like that mm-hmm. while you're still conscious. There's OBEs out of body experience. They like mm-hmm. sometimes say it's the it's a precursor to kind of doing an an OBE. And I had a uh, lot of fun incorporating all of this. Yeah, it's it's, it's of all of this have made it into the book. Some people think that they're actually entities, like like tricksters, mm-hmm. things like that. The shadow people, 
just what they are there are so many theories that they're demons that they're angels that they're time travelers that they're extra extraterrestrials that they're trans-dimensional beings mm-hmm. you know there, there's so many different things and i had a lot of fun playing with the concept of a curtain wall between all these different dimensions and planes so that every single one of those concepts was correct and they each came from a different place and uh this is where i did a little bit of brainstorming with my husband um the aurora borealis has different colors and it has that curtain effect and Mm. so my theory is that each color of the aurora is actually a different plane um like when a curtain moves and it comes up against another curtain or or something and so part of it is more visible more dense or whatever well you could Uh, also think about it if there's different colors in the aurora borealis like each color has a frequency so if you have a different dimension it's just resonating at a different frequency just as color resonance i I don't know just throwing it out there Right. So, so when and the aurora borealis, they say that it's um, solar activity, like a solar storm that causes the effect. But there are plenty of times when there's absolutely no solar activity to be registered, and yet you still have an aurora. And mm. they're not just at the poles; they happen everywhere. It's just that at the poles is where they're the most visible. There was even a time quite recently when it was as far down here as New Jersey. The weather was crappy. I couldn't see anything, but but they were projecting um, that the lights would be seen this far down. So in effect, if the if the aurora was actually the dimensions touching so that people could either I don't have it that you can cross. At, at least not usually um but those dimensions touch and so people from one dimension can be felt or or impact through the curtain depending on what color frequency is visible interesting well i, I did something similar for for mine there's a little bit about wormholes right and yeah. and again i just I just made it up, right? I was just having fun. And then I did an interview, um, which again, by the time this airs, it, the, the video will have been aired uh, or have been, would have been published. So I did an interview, a series of interviews with a guy named David Morehouse. Are you familiar with him? I'm not. So he was part, and this he's, he's totally legit because you know I spent five years in the military and he his first, I guess, eight years of service, he was um, a company commander in the 82nd Airborne. He was, uh, uh, he commanded a ranger company. Um, and like, he speaks the language, the lingo, mm-hmm. um, even, like without faith, he's, he's, like in an interview, he's talking about, oh, I looked over to my RTO and I'm like, for the audience, that just means radio telephone operator. Like just literally <laughs> like to- totally legit. But he, he was supposed to be a general's aide to an Italian 
general. And he's going to supposed to go to DLI, the Defense Language Institute in Monterey. Mm-hmm. And they found somebody sooner who could speak fluent Italian. So his, his assignment got canceled. Mm-hmm. So the long and short of it is he, he got put into, the, into this special access program. Um, and he had a bit of a, you know, he was kind of hitting the helmet with a machine gun round. And he had sort of a vision, but he kind of kept it quiet for obvious reasons. He didn't want everybody to be thinking he's crazy. Mm-hmm. So he goes to the special access program. Um, you know, they remove his records. They put them on this something called the Dasher file, um, where if you're in the army, they can't find your record anymore. And uh, he works for some offshoot of the um, ISA, which is this uh, sometimes goes by uh, Gray Wolf Task Force Orange more recently, not when he was there. Um, but it's kind of the army's um, version of the CIA, basically. It's a it's a and uh, there's a psychologist that he's talking to because he hasn't really been assigned yet to a specific special mm-hmm. access program. And he goes through two polygraphs. The first polygraph he passes fine. The second polygraph rings an inconclusive. And so he kind of, he kind of like, cause he's nervous about this thing. Cause he's not telling him about it. Yeah. Yeah. So he finally says, look, I haven't said anything about this cause I don't want to be committed but I had this experience and he's, you know, cause the psychologist always talks, he was talking to him and interviewing him. And at the end of every interview, it's like, is there anything else you want to tell me? <laughs> right. Um, you know, very subjective. Do I want to tell you no. <laughs> so he does. And the guy smiles when he says it, he stands up and he pulls out this file. It's called project Brill flame. And he's like, why don't you read this tonight and come back to me in the morning. It's what it is. So, Long and short of it, I'll get to how this links up to wormholes eventually. But <laughs> he reads the file and, and sees kind of the early remote viewing missions, particularly in the Iranian embassy and things like that. Because mm-hmm. when the hostage crisis happened in 1979, while on site, they may have had a floor plan. The government, U.S. government did not have a floor plan. They had no idea about the layout and things like that. So they had to use remote viewing techniques, which is basically it's not it's not out of body experience, but it's transferring your or projecting your consciousness somewhere else in space and time and kind of slowly opening that aperture of insight. And then there's actually a very specific process where you received coordinates, you draw a signal line and then you start with kind of a six stage process. It's very protocol driven. Um, as the military would be for something, even even something as esoteric as this. Yeah. Um, it's not always accurate, doesn't always work, but it is far more accurate than you would think, right? It would be like 60%. Cool. I'm, I'm just kind of guessing. So anyway, he ends up working in that program and he's the guy who blew the lid on it, uh, or blew the lid off on it in a book called Psychic Warrior that you can, you can find. Um, but anyway, I did a series of like seven interviews with him. In the seventh interview, the rem- these remote viewers were finding um, – they kept going back to this terrain feature in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. So – and and they kind of had a theory. And this is, this is kind of going into borderline crazy town, but this is real. This happened. Um, they took a physical trip to investigate what this terrain feature was. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, they were looking, what they were looking for were portals in or wormholes, right? In uh, New Mexico. And through, you know, through this process, they did some remote viewing. They, and by the way, th- there's just a whole rabbit hole too. Like if you, if you start learning about the Anasazi, um, yeah. how they yeah. resorted to cannibalism, like it is, I haven't even, I've just begun going down that rabbit hole, but it's fascinating stuff. So the long and short of it is they kind of followed a bunch of leads, talked to locals, and they got to this place called um, Pueblo Alto in Ch- in Chaco Canyon. Mm-hmm. And they kind of, you know, looked up to the sky and they, at two and a half hour intervals, the sky would open. And he, you know, Morehouse said that it looked like, it looked like cellophane, like a cellophane, like, um, glimmer. And they, they, yeah, I I don't know if it was iridescence, but it was like, it it was almost like, and he didn't frame it this way, but, you know, if you could imagine just like another star system or, or something kind of like the way I described it in my. I mean, these things are, are really weird, <laughs> right? How they work. Cause I just yeah. like, I knew nothing about this and, and then it would, it would be open for about 10 minutes and then it would shut close and they, they did it at night. Right. So they could, they yeah. could see it. He, he never saw anything come out of it during that, that night. But I think the theory, the theory that they had was um, so before that, before that night, um, from a distance in prior nights, they would see these like vertical shafts of light, just like at random two and yeah. a half hour intervals, three hours, like just open up, the sky would open up, something which yeah. I wouldn't say open up, but they would just see like a light <laughs> appear, wink, and then yeah. just well, like slam a into the earth and just like vanish. Yeah. So what their theory was, was that there were, um, they were trying to investigate if there were kind of underground um, bases. Okay. For extraterrestrial activity. I, I don't, I don't know what yeah. they found. I don't know how, how much farther it went, but he said after they did that expedition, um, somebody had reported crews that had gone in that area that were, had all this equipment and were focused on the, the sky. So I don't know where it went. I don't know, but the government like paid, <laughs> paid them to go on a trip cool. to investigate it. Yeah. Anyway, that's a long, <laughs> long, long, short, but, but, but the reason I, I felt inspired to talk about it was your, um, your story about resonant frequencies and like veils and curtains between different realities. Yeah. Um, you know, I look, we, this stuff sounds completely crazy. Have you watched the secrets of Skinwalker ranch? I haven't, I've heard of it, but I haven't watched. I, I, I do so much editing and everything that I rarely so, get to, to just watch so, things. <laughs> so there's actually a Bane author, Travis Taylor. Yeah. But he's like a P he's a, I don't know if he's multiple PhDs, but he's like a rocket scientist type guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, there's like three episodes or sorry, three seasons. He went in the first season, like, okay, guys, let's, you know, let's just, let's, let's find, um, let's collect data. Let's just see what's going on with this place. Complete mm-hmm. skeptic. And by season three, they're seeing um, portals opening in the sky. They're seeing wow. on, on, on camera on camera (laughs) so it's and there's there's another book called um skinwalkers at the pentagon so the the dia the defense intelligence agency did a study a 10-year study or so with the bigelow aerospace of the same place and um it's a book you can get and it is 
I read it in about two hours. It is creepy mm-hmm. um, because there's a, something called the hitchhiker effect where the phenomenon follows you home. Ooh. So what happened is these yeah. guys who had classified security, you know, had, had top secret security clearances would, you know, um, DIA scientists, they would go back home to rural Virginia, wouldn't mm-hmm. say anything to their families because they couldn't. And their kids would report orbs. Yeah. They would report like canine like entities yeah. They would and and they didn't like no like had no idea what it was absolutely terrifying but yeah. there's some phenomena where they it follows you so anyway in some of my research the um the shadow people weren't just linked to a place there were accounts of them following people to yeah. different like even different states and over years but the same phenomena so that it was like the same creature yeah it's um crazy crazy stuff so if folks want to check out e-spec books or any of your books mm-hmm. where where should they go and what should they check out okay well uh, my newest one is dares devils which is action-packed character-driven military science fiction with just enough humor to take off the edge um the Eastpec sells off of their our uh, Square store, which is eastpec.square.site. And you can find everything there, um, all of my books and all of the other books. You can pre-order the System of Paradoxa titles that haven't come out yet. Um, yes, please do that. <laughs> <laughs> please do that. And, um, and we have our conventional website as well, eSpecBooks.com. I have my own website, but it doesn't get much activity, <laughs> meaning I, I do don't get to it? update it that much. I, I, yeah. I endeavor to update it, but I wear way too many hats. So it's a very sporadic thing. Um, eSpec Books also ends up being sporadic. The store is up to date. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's all that matters, right? Yeah, people can get the right. books that they want. What about um, Cryptid Crate? What do people need to do to sign up? Go Cryptid to sign up Crate. For that? It's cryptidcrate.com, and going there, you can reach and access all of their different subscription boxes. And you can sign up for monthly subscription boxes, or you can order a specific crate um, that's forthcoming. And their store also has both. Uh, past crates that you can get until they are out of crates and the elements that are in the crates they often end up with overstock and you can buy individual items as well Uh, the t-shirts and they've started to pair with some of their content creators to also uh, offer their products as well so there's a bit of a mixed I'm blanking on the word I want. <laughs> mixed, There's mixed, mixed inventory there. Okay. I, it's not always, because I think, you, I don't know if you mentioned earlier on this interview or, or um, before we started recording, but the Nox, or sorry, the um, Sistema Paradoxa content is once a quarter. Yes. Right? Um, we we, we kind of tangented it away from that. 
Uh, when we were approached to create the cryptic crates, the, the system of paradox content, initially they were just looking for content. They didn't have any specific goal. And then when they discovered that we were going to create this series and they were really excited by what we were telling them of what it would be, they came up with the plan to do quarterly exclusive boxes that focused on one particular cryptid and it was built around the system of paradox book that was going to go in it. So generally they create a t-shirt, a 3D figurine, 3D printed fig figurine, I should say, and a challenge coin. And then there would be occasionally other assorted things that came in the box as well, decals, stickers from, from other people they were partnering with. And, but all of it is exclusive to that box created, content created for the box around the, the system of paradox of volume that was being featured. All right, um, anything else you wanna leave the audience with? Um, buy our books. <laughs> That's the best thing I can say, buy our books. And if you yeah, I think the series is a great- books, Leave us a review. <laughs> yeah, I think the series is a great um, series. I think I, I really liked how, I really like how it's coming together. And, um, and even, even if you can't, even if the cryptid crate is sold out for that particular, uh, you know, volume, you can still get the volume on yes, um, yes. Amazon but, or like any other place where yeah. books are the sold, I think. Right. Yeah. The nice thing is, is that they're only exclusive until the box they're featured in ships. Once all the subscribers have their box, because the point of subscription boxes generally is that they are surprise content. You don't know what you're going to get. And it's just a nice little surprise that you get once a month for yourself or someone gets for you. And then once that's why all of our system of paradoxal books release on the 21st of the month of whatever their publication month is so that the subscribers have a chance to get their boxes. <laughs> well, the good news is mine's out today. So, well, not, I mean, not today, but uh, when this, when this As appears, of this airing, yeah, as of yeah, as of this airing, it will be available. So, all right. Well, thank you very much, and thank you. Uh, hopefully, we'll get a good update and see how this you know this whole program's going. Definitely. Talk to you soon. Bye. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time.